Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. And I love buying my comics at Meltdown Comics. And I know you do too. So I'm going to give you a little gift. And that gift is a discount. So if you use my password, which is going to be Pod Sequentialism Rocks, to any of the employees that work here at checkout, they will give you a discount on your comics. How much is that discount? 11%. Can't beat that with a bag of hammers. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And today we're going to be speaking with a museum curator from Texas, um, a woman named Apama Mackey. And she runs the Museum of Drawing in Houston and has had quite an interesting career in the arts herself leading up to this. And um, since I'll be actually um, guest curating a show there this summer, I wanted to make sure to have her on as a guest and talk about what it's like to not be in what is traditionally considered the major markets of New York and Los Angeles, but that Texas is actually a very robust and vibrant art market and uh, has a completely different scale of collectors, not only owing to the amount of industry that's in Texas, but as a doorway to South America and other collectors. So I want to go ahead and welcome Apama Mackey. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, go ahead and talk a little bit about how you got involved in the art world and kind of bring us up to speed from then until now. Well, I, I think it was really about 20 years ago when I was vacationing uh, with my husband then, and we were just going to different places and, and doing the whole tourist art scene and falling in love with just the climate, the, the the people in different places and, and buying art from there because that's what we were really into and interested in. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it just got a little heavy very quick where we started looking at art in a different way. We were looking at it tourist-wise and then all of a sudden it's just, it seems like it was a month from there to looking at auction markets to right. figure out what to do and and it got to a point where i was just thinking we we got to do this we got to open a gallery we got to we got to go for it and so uh we opened the gallery and that that was basically 20 years ago it's just complete whirlwind for me so you started out primarily as a collector we did we did i did um yeah definitely it was just i i think a lot of people kind of started out as collectors i don't think you ever stopped being a collector right that's for sure you can tell from my apartment i I know there's no room for people where i live (laughs) just full of art and so the um as a collector and and being based in texas what type of stuff were you accessing internationally that you were then bringing back home and then what type of work did you want to focus on when you opened your gallery 
kind of funny because I got very, very heavy into Latin American art. And mm. I, I'm not talking about Frida Kahlo. I'm just talking about Latin American art. Right. Just everything that was about Latin American art, which which is so soulful. Uh, me, I'm from Iran, so being a little banished from my own country, mm. I kind of adopted Mexico and and South America is my plight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love everything about it. It was just the expression of of who they are and, and putting it down and talking about politics, but on paper mm-hmm. without really putting it in your face. And so much and so much history that comes out of it and people trying to get away from that uh, self-expression where you're painting yourself over and over. And, you and know, the it's... history of that. That's that's interesting because, you know, Vincent Price was, of course, a huge um, supporter of Latin American art. And there's a Vincent Price Museum here in Los Angeles over in Hacienda Heights. And I remember talking to Johnny Depp about 20, 25 years ago when he was buying pieces from us um, when we were on Melrose at La Luz de Jesus. And he had said that it was working with Vincent Price on the set of Edward Scissorhands where they had this very long discussion about art and supporting the arts that really kind of triggered his instinct to start collecting. And since Vincent had been collecting Native American and uh, Latin American art, uh, Johnny had kind of started collecting a little bit of the same and branching out into um, the kind of outsider realm and the self-taught. So it's, it's interesting that that seems to be kind of a, a nice jumping off point for people who are serious collectors and then who later have a very big impact on the, uh, the art scene in the United States. Well, if you also look at some of the American artists, like we're just going to take Jackson Pollock as the prime example. Mm-hmm. He was just absolutely fascinated by the, the muralist, basically, Sikaris. And I know that I'm just totally not saying that right. But <laughs> he was just so fascinated by him. And he called him as one of his influences. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's just that I think a lot of people do look to that. And I do think it is a great foundation for your interest in art or or an artist's interest in art. I I get it. (laughs) And so 20 years ago, you're starting to set up this collection and you're opening a gallery. And so when you started giving shows, what was the um, what was the reception to that? And was this in Houston or was this in Dallas? No, it was it was all done in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew a family. This is so crazy. I'm just I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis of what actually happened. Sure. So we we here we are in Santa Fe, huge tourist town, and yep. we run into a real gallery. Mm-hmm. And this real gallery, and, and I don't mean to, to downplay the tourist art galleries. I, I don't, but I just mean a gallery that's not during tourist art at all, right. where you have to actually make an appointment and, and those types of things. We run into this gallery, and they show us this work that is just absolutely amazing. And, you know, it is just one of those things where I fall in love with the work. His name's Roberto Marquez. Mm-hmm. So Roberto has a show in in Monterrey, Mexico. So we go there for his show at the Marco Museum. Mm-hmm. And the bellboy starts asking us questions, introduces us to his brother, Charlie, Carlos, mm-hmm. who to this day is one of my closest friends. And he <laughs> really opened up a whole world for us. 
That's amazing. And so also, yes, also introduced us to this collector, one of the biggest collectors to come out of Mexico. And uh, we got to show some of his collection at the gallery. So I really think we like hit it hard, just like showing the Gypsy Kings at your opening or something for me. <laughs> right, right. And so now the um, you were doing art fairs too, right? Right. I'm, I've done Art Brussels, uh, Art Brussels Miami with the Clayton Brothers. Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we found them because of Billy Shire's book. We, because he put that book out for them, We that's how we found them. And that's 2003, 2004, and that was one of the first four or five books, I think, that we published. Now we've got, I think... 45 or 50 books under our belt but that's the, um, phenomenal and we've i've always credited you as saying you know that we had we had been doing our own thing for a really really long time but it wasn't until you took the claytons to basil miami and they did that first shack show that um that broke pop surrealism open into the greater art market at large and certainly there had been marquee names like robert williams and um at that point even i think um I'm not sure how much uh, art fair experience Mark Ryden had had, but he was certainly hitting that second price threshold. But it was that attention given to these artists that had come out of the kind of Billy Shire staple, Alusta Jesus and then Billy Shire Fine Arts, that um, really started to kind of change the landscape of contemporary art. And that kind of made it okay for people who were buying, you know, even people who are buying Jackson Pollock's and maybe even Sam Francis and people like that to kind of look around to these, this tattoo influenced, um, maybe animation friendly type artwork that would had been seen and classified as lowbrow for a couple of decades and was now hitting that higher realm. And of course, because the Clayton brothers were very well educated artists, um, with the kind of intellectual CV that they had put together that um, you showcasing them really did change the landscape. I think the following year, people like Liz McGrath were, were then showing at Basel, and it, it really became a big accepted thing. We've, we've always thanked you for that. I think it's just incredible. You know, I really appreciate that. I appreciate that recognition, but, uh, you know, of course, they had so much to do with it. I remember flying uh, over there to L.A. just to, to meet with them mm -hmm. and being in their studio and going, look, I don't know what I'm going to promise you, but this is what I'm doing. I am. I'm just going to put your work out there. This is this is what I want. And we're going to do it. And somehow the four of us just made this amazing thing happen. And I think every single one of us just totally was you know, taken to a whole different level for, for us spiritually, you know, artistically, everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course my greatest moment was Iggy Pop walking into my booth Yeah, and I am not starstruck at all by anything. And then Iggy Pop walks in and I just want to crawl into somebody's lab. <laughs> <It was laughs> awesome. Great experience. And he is only five foot one. <laughs> I, you know, I I don't even clear five two, so I wouldn't have noticed at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the um from Basel, and that would have been like two thousand four or five, four, right? It was, yeah, yeah, two thousand four December. And so then you were um kind of like the the voice in the wilderness in in Texas because there's certainly that Dallas market. And and now there's, you know, the Houston Contemporary Art Market, which is one of the better shows in America. But in that interim, I got to imagine that you were the only game in town for this type of work. 
Oh, for that type of work, definitely, definitely. And also, you know, I, I show a lot of figuration and, and not a lot of artists do. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not, I don't mean artists, I, I apologize. I mean galleries, not right. a lot of galleries show figuration. And so I think people knew that I was always going to show figuration, not sprinkle it here or there. And uh, it was just always been such a big staple in the gallery. It's just gut-wrenching for me. I'm just a painter's painter kind of girl. Right. In love with that. So who are some of the other people that started to come across your radar in the in the next few years that then also started to catch the zeitgeist? So I went to the Havana Biennale, uh, I think like the eighth Havana Biennale, but you know, with, with Cuba, it, it doesn't have to be every two years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I went and my whole world opened up again and again. Uh, I saw Martin and Cecilia. They're from the Canary Islands. It's an amazing duo of artists that do uh, these beautiful vantage point paintings with different rooms showing at one time and these great cutouts that look absolutely like you're looking at the person right next to you. Wow. And, um, Jose Angel, uh, who is just an amazing Cuban artist, he's very well known. He did a lot of work with uh, using advertisement with uh, Castro. Yeah, he's like the, those, the Cuban Richard Prince with a kind of more political message. Oh, very much so. So his wife, Myra Myrera, she's a she's a historian. She's an art historian, and so she does collaborate with him quite a bit. And uh, I think it just is such a power duo in the work that they do. And of course, those Castro pieces can't leave the country. Right. But every museum in the world loves to just go visit his studio. He's something else. Um, they just call him Toy Rack because it's Jose Angel Toy Rack. And so he just goes by the name Toy Rack. So all these different things just started opening up and, and those types of artists and I've always been into West Coast art, but for some reason just stayed back because I was just so loyal to the Clayton Brothers. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want anything that looked anything like them or right. came near them for such a long time. So um, just recently, I started branching out, and now it seems like I'm going to have a lot of West Coast. Yeah, well, a lot of people have settled here too. So you know, there's. With you now um, running the Museum of Drawing, and we'll get to that, I think, probably a little bit after the break, but um, because you've got that as as a venue and because you've always been concentrating on figurative and narrative work, you know, like there's Lori Lipton, who is originally from New Jersey but lived for 35 years in England, and when we gave her a show at La Luz, um, she came to visit, and she just fell in love with Los Angeles and actually helped find the apartment that she lives in now. And um, so she's now a West Coast artist, even though she's by most of the world, I think, thought of as an English artist. And of course, she's American. So she's and she's from New Jersey. But that that tends to happen, that people come and visit. And we've got, you know, if you're from New York and you come to L.A., then you see that the the rent is so much less or it it was for a little while. And it it seems to be creeping up, but still nowhere near as bad as, say, San Francisco or, or New York. And then the weather is different, and so there's that kind of wide open spaces thing that um, that people don't have, and artists who are used to having to work in apartments and cramped spaces in New York can then open up their size restriction, and and their color palette tends to change. 
so that the West Coast definitely has that that impact. But you had mentioned, you know, talking about Cuba, and it's funny that a few years back, when I had uh, drifted um, right before I, I left the entertainment business for what, for it seems like the um, for good, <laughs> there was um, I was working in marketing, and I purchased a film called Corda Vision, which was about Corda, the um, the famous uh, Cuban revolutionary photographer and the guy that took the photograph, the iconic photograph of Che Guevara. And he had chosen the name Corda. It wasn't his birth name because it reminded him of his favorite films that he had seen, you know, Alexander Corda, the producer, Thief of Baghdad, and, and that type of stuff. But um, that those images had still, most of them never left Cuba. And when the filmmaker, a guy named Hector Cruz Sandoval, had put together this documentary, I was going to join him on a second research trip to Cuba, and you had to petition the government to get permission to to leave and go. And of course, we've seen in this last year with uh, President Obama opening up the embargo on Cuba, and now you can just fly, fly direct. But of course, it was more difficult, and I'm sure you would have had to have flown first to Monterey, and then to Cuba, and then back to Monterey, and then back to Houston. Oh no! Um, th- or from this Florida. This is the funny thing: some people were some people were just going. And they said, we're going to Cuba. And I don't know what it was. I just sounded great. I'm going to go with you. (laughs) And they're like, okay, well, somebody's arranging everything. And then just two weeks before, two weeks before I was leaving, I figured out that Americans weren't allowed to go. Right. But, I mean, here I am with um, no knowledge of this whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And, And you might think that it's so just not very smart of me not to know this but I didn't know I didn't concern myself with it ever and I just thought well I've got an Iranian passport and I've got an American passport I can go anywhere what are you talking about right but then they're like no it's illegal to go and I thought great wouldn't that make a great art news cover with me in handcuffs and (laughs) so to me I was like cool I'm going so we literally just flew into Cancun and then flew to Cuba. And it, it just to me, it was so easy. It was, it wasn't anything. And of course, the, they didn't even stamp my passport, didn't even think about it. it. You know, back then, they know you're going for art. They know you're traveling for art. Yeah. They're not going to sit there and, and, you know, wake you over the coals for it. It doesn't right. matter. Yeah. And it seems like the, the world finally smartened up about it, which is nice. No, no, it's it's very nice. I, I do feel privileged. So I was there at this at this time where you're not supposed to be there. Right. Well, I think we'll take a quick break here, and then I will we'll get in a word from one of our sponsors, and then we'll return with the conversation with Apama Mackey, and we'll talk about how the Museum of Drawing in Houston uh, was formed and what the program is going to be like in just a few minutes. I'll be back right here. I am Matt Kennedy. This is Pod Sequentialism. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and we are speaking today with Apama Mackey, who is the director of the Museum of Drawing in Houston, Texas, and has had a very long career in in the art world in contemporary art. And so um, before the break, we talked about how you had come around to getting involved as an art curator and opening a gallery. And so talk to us now a little bit about this latest venture, which is the Museum of Drawing in Houston. Well, I started this entity i like to just call it an entity about five years ago mm-hmm. so uh just this great idea of mine another great idea a brainiac idea 
uh, that I just didn't know where it was going, had never had an experience in it. Somehow I got it together and, and formed a 501c3 and just fell in love with uh, having the entity, but I, it just never got around to having its own place mm-hmm. until this year, where I was so into these, this old draftsmanship style of, of drawing, finding it such a pure beginning of everything. A kind of and, Albrecht and, Durer type of thing. In a way, in a way, but it wasn't until... Yeah, I have to cite Max Ernst and yeah. Magritte for their drawings that are just so yeah. gut-wrenching, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I saw a drawing of Magritte that just cut me at the knees. It's, it, it's a, a tree stump, and one of the roots of the tree is holding the axe, like mm. co- coddling the axe, wow. as in as in coddling the one that hurts you or right, hurt you so right. deeply, like caught the trees. So I was just, a, and to me, it was, it was so beautiful. And then I started getting interested in, in artists that were making this drawing come to life, like David Shrigley. Oh God, I, how amazing is he? And, right. and the master, William Kentridge, who the drawings and the music that he has go with them are just awe-inspiring. And I I got so involved in it and thought I wanted a museum for that. I wanted a museum where you have drawing that actually makes this statement, comes to life, makes it for the masses. Mm-hmm. Where even people that are teenagers now that are just looking at a drawing going, Oh, that's boring, can look at a drawing or you look at a William Kentridge and and, and completely be inspired by right. by his method and how he comes about to it. So that started it all in a nutshell. Well, it's interesting too that even in that, like by by citing someone like William Kentridge as um as an influence for opening up this space, that he's one of the few guys from that post war collective, you know that um and he often gets grouped in with people um like Ed Ruscha and some of the West Coast guys, but then also some of the New Yorkers like uh, Jackson Pollock and you know people like Sam Francis, who I don't think. Um, most people even realize that he's a Californian, you know, that Sam Francis was one of those post-war guys that, that actually found money and fame in Europe and then in Japan when the rest of these guys weren't making any money. And so it was always on a slightly different level, but that, um, that Kentridge is one of these illustrators who I think a lot of people, when they think of illustration may not immediately go to, you know, that there is more of that gust of Doré and that kind of, um, you know, that etching type of illustration art that people lock into. So right off the bat, you're kind of starting with a broadening, I think, of what a lot of people's understanding is of drawing. And then the other kind of academic angle is that, of course, almost any work on paper is classified as a drawing, but certainly illustration and drawings can be paintings as well, so that you have sort of a bigger pool that you get to play in than necessarily that name may um, foretell. Oh, it's so much more than that. It's animation. Yeah. It's, you know, some we showed a kinetic drawing before, which the artist actually did a, a, a drawing and painting of a Western landscape. Uh, and uh, Dan Fabian, and he did this amazing thing. And he literally had rollers rolling this landscape. 
Wow. And then a tumbleweed moving by itself uh, <laughs> in a different motion. It was just gorgeous. And, and to me, that's something that's so much more appealing than just walking through and going, oh, it's a drawing show. Right. And and for me, I, I need it to make some kind of statement that's relevant. And, and public engagement. Yeah. Right. I just to keep moving, move forward. Just, you know, of course, we have to pay homage to what came before, but move forward, make it happen. Mm-hmm. And all of that makes it happen for me. The animation makes it happen. The kinetic drawing made it happen. So I'm a little passionate. I know you can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also really, really great and kind of wonderful that, you know, we're, we're, we're talking to a woman born in Iran who has this kind of wonderful Texas draw, which I don't think anybody would expect. <laughs> I'm trying so hard. I'm trying so hard to keep it not a draw. I, I suppress my Massachusetts accent as much as possible, too. And it's funny that until a couple weeks ago when I did a show with uh, my friend Dan Madigan and we're, we're both we both grew up like 20 minutes apart. And I was worried that it was just going to sound like, you know, this collection of, of Boston accents back and forth. But um, <laughs> I, I think I've still done a fairly good job of suppressing it. No. So you're doing a really wonderful job at it. But it's, it's this little mimicker, subtle thing. Though. I do mimic. If I'm <laughs> around anyone from East Texas, you'd swear I was born and raised there. <laughs> That's amazing. So like, I do rock also a cowboy hat through the entire summer. Oh, and that's great. It's because of the sun. But it just goes. I'm I'm too I short, I think, to pull off the really big ten gallon hat. Otherwise, I'd probably <laughs> wear one too, just because. But so tell me too. Also, I think a lot of people don't really understand um, what goes into curation, just basically. And it's funny because you know I'm I'm a gallery director. I've been doing this for years, and it's not something that I talk about really on the program. And the complexities of piecing together a program when you don't have a a static space are incredibly challenging and even with you know a 501c with uh, you know nonprofit status where you may have access to municipal spaces to do things um, every time you would do a show if you don't have the same space all the time you have a completely different set of challenges at every single individual space and if you're doing um, group shows then you've added a sort of exponential layer of difficulty onto the process because then it's like moving all the pieces if, if you have one central shipping location rather than having them ship to the site because you may not have access to the site all the time so walk people through the differences you know you, you went from being somebody who had a private gallery with um, a static location and so you you knew your space and you, you could curate the space um, knowing what it's going to be like every month and then going into a kind of public space where you have to use the spaces that are available, what are the challenges? What's the um, what do you think has been the most gratifying part of that? And and you know, walk us through that a bit. I think when I I really had a lot of good friends uh, in Houston. It's it's quite. I don't know how it is in other places. I shouldn't even differentiate it. But a lot of the dealers here are actually friends. Mm-hmm. We're, we're friends. We bounce ideas off of each other. I actually moved where I I am at because of the dealers down the street. I just wanted to be close to them. Yeah. I I like them. It's not that we have to have shows on the same night. Of course, it would be better, but it doesn't always work out that way. Right. But uh, 
you know, those dealers help me a lot. I'm able to go into their spaces if I ever needed it. They always open their doors to me. And um, our public spaces are really open to having art shows. They're just, oh, I just can't explain Houston to you. It sounds like there's a great sense of community. It is a crazy great sense of community. We have so many spaces. No one is ever at a loss by where they're going to show because everybody does open up. Everybody does pull through and help. And I can't even say it without gushing anymore. Mm -hmm. So it was, none of that was challenging. What was challenging is something you did say was about, you know, getting the work in and getting it in into a central place. And then we get these weird torrential rain, just completely weird. So you just have to make sure that wherever you're getting the work sent to has to be in a place that goes indoors where the UPS guy doesn't just leave it and take off. Right. And so those kinds of things are challenging, but of course you, you work around them and you just, you just find a way. I mean, if they have to be delivered to my parents' house then they have to be delivered to my parents' house, right, I don't, right. I don't care. You make it happen. And, um, it, it always worked. It always worked. I, I think it's passion and, and dumb luck, and, and you make it happen. Right. Necessity being the mother of invention and mom's house being the perfect place to invent. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So after like four or five years of moving from space to space, you now have a permanent home. Yes, I have a permanent home. The crazy thing is the uh, Contemporary Art Fair here was so gracious. They have this partnership they call uh they have these little booths and they'll have partnerships with nonprofit spaces where they'll give the nonprofit space uh a small space in the fair mm-hmm. and i remember i put on a whole show inside this tiny space with all these other nonprofit spaces and clint willauer who was running the Galveston Arts Center for a very long time, who's very active in the Houston arts, was at the fair. And, of course, I've I've had my gallery building for such a long time. I had just leased it out to an artist, and I just needed to step away from having the physical space for a while. Mm -hmm. And Clint comes up to me and goes, I can't understand your fundraising. What are you doing? You have no permanent space, and no one's going to support you without a permanent space. And I just kind of looked at him like, well, you meanie. But he was just like, you know what? Last time I checked, you have a space. And just walked off. And by the next morning, I had thought, that's it. I'm moving back into my space. And I have enough space for the museum to have its own way, for for it to have a, a video area, a room something where it can call it its own. That's amazing. And by Wednesday, I'd ask the tenant to be out, and it, it all started from there. That's perfect. And so and Some you... really crazy, mean remarks <laughs> <laughs> made out of absolute love. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's what you need to hear, not what you want to hear that, that moves the needle. And so the, um, the inaugural show in the new space is in basically two and a half weeks, right? Three weeks? It is. I'm very excited. <laughs> and I'm very excited that you, you invited me to, to help with this. So that, oh, um, that was just, what do they call that? Kismet. Total that kismet. Perfect. Yeah. So the, um, for, for my listeners who, who don't know what we're talking about yet, I'll let them in the secret. So that, um, 
I had gotten a call, or actually not even I had, but the um the shop. So Waco, which is the store that um that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery, and it's a seven thousand to ten thousand square foot um, area with about seven thousand square feet being the retail space, and us occupying about one fifth of that for two separate gallery rooms for exhibitions. Um, we got a call, and you had asked specifically, I think, about a Black Lives Matter sticker that we were selling on the website. If I remember right. correctly, and so well, what, it was—it's great. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no problem. And so um, one of the employees couldn't find them and asked me if I knew where they were because I had brought them in, and it—you know—it was a sticker that was um, developed by the Panic Collective, which is this group of of curators and artists and scientists that do these different public actions and um, occasionally like. Um, art exhibitions as well. And so we had this conversation and then I kind of got the gist. First I was like, wait a minute, I think I know who this is. I think I know who this person is. And it, it just kind of all fell into place. Like I realized that you had been the woman responsible for bringing the Clayton brothers to Basel and that you were starting this new endeavor with this, um, uh, or a new space at least for the um, this museum. And you started talking, I mentioned the rest of the Panic Collective's um, kind of and you you looked it up and you're like oh well, let's let's just do this you know let's let's bring this into the show let's do a panic collective show and so um i wind up um being a, a guest curator for the inaugural show at the new space and i'll be flying out um be bringing uh, a couple members of the collective with me and it'll be a great opportunity to again talk about how what people's perceptions of what drawing is to kind of expand and um, and tell me a little bit about the rest of that show because there's a couple of things that are going on and the Panic Collective is one part of it, but it seems to be a very um, action awareness political show. You know, I have teenagers. I have teenage boys who normally would not really care at all what's going on in politics today. Mm-hmm. But I think with the advent of all this social media, all, all these kids are involved. All of a sudden, they're they're giving you their opinion of who they're going to vote for, knowing they can't vote. Right. And uh, they're like, "I'm voting for so and so," and you're and you're thinking, "You can't even vote." And where did you get that idea? Right. But, and so I see all this. I see the social media, and I thought, God, this is such an unprecedented type of election only because we've gone to places we haven't gone to. And, and yes, we, we have a black president, and that is somewhere we haven't gone to. But now it's like it's just there's no limit now yeah. to who wants to be president. Right. And there's no limit now to what can be Bad. Right. There's no prettiness. It's not back in the day of Kennedy and and uh, Jackie O, where everybody's trying to keep it pretty and tight lipped. And, and uh, no, this is it. Everybody's just saying exactly what they want to say. Mm-hmm. And and people's outcry has been crazy. So I started doing all of this type of research. I was looking on all these websites, just going from one website to another trying to collect every single thing I could from memorabilia things. And, and nothing that was like Clinton 2016, more tongue-in-cheek things. Right. I wanted to see uh, humor, just this very cutthroat humor I like. So, I'll have to bring my Archie Bunker for president political bat pin that I still have yeah, from the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Another meathead for president, I think it says on it. Meathead, that's yeah. perfect. That brings back 
everything. So I, I saw this. Uh, I, I was, of course, I went to Lola, uh, LA. I can't not go to Lola's. So I go to Lola's. I actually went to LA to meet Christian uh, Clayton. Right. For dinner with his family. Oh, that's great. So I go there. I know. So I go there. And of course, I fall in love with Nicole Wasik that you're showing there. And yep. I just have this crazy time. I love the gallery space. I love what everybody's doing. Love WACA. I love all that. And then I see this sticker. I'm about to check out. And I see this sticker, and it says Black Lives Matter. And I think, God, this is great for my show. I'm going to have a little political show in, in the summer. What a perfect time. And I see this sticker, and I hold it up to the light. And then the watermark comes through. <laughs> the watermark of that high school, you know what? Yeah, the hand gesture, comes, yeah. The, the gesture of what you can do with it uh, comes up, and I thought, oh, wow, this is so perfect. So with all my research, I couldn't find it, and that's how I got led to you. I just called up, and I'm like, where, where do I get this? I need more of this sticker. Yeah. And then the rest is history. Yeah, history writing itself as we speak. <laughs> it is. It's writing. It wrote itself, basically. But you know, I approach it like I approached everything else in life. It felt right. I just went with it, and it made a full circle for me. And that's all there had to be about it. That's amazing. And so that show is going to open on June eleventh. June eleventh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then it's it's up it's all summer. Been- I've been, yeah, it's been over a month that I've been doing this, but putting up the show little by little. You have to send me some more pictures, and we'll run them on on the um, on the uh, blog site too, and then uh, we'll carry them across the social media as well, so that people can kind of get a, a gist of what what everything is when it's in place, and then. Obviously, anybody who's going to be in the Houston area um, from June 11th onward, um, stop by the Museum of Drawing. Um, if you're there that opening weekend, you can come and say hello to me. And um, I know that uh, some of the collective members will be with me as well. Apama will be there. And other people who have pieces in the political aspect end of the show will be there as well. I think you recreated one of the bus benches, one of the Pan-Collective bus benches, so it'll be great for people to see those. And it's just a really great mix of different types of work, whether it's um, standard kind of illustration pictogram into, I think they even included one of the um, the abstracted album cover pieces, which kind of takes a very figurative style and turns it into an abstract painting in this way of opening up the conversation between the um, the two worlds of sort of academic approach to art and then the, the public's opinion of things. And I think one of the great... Um, missteps of academia over the years has been an inability to want or feel a need to engage with the public in explaining what conceptual art is. And if there are people that can do conceptual work that also has a really great um, level of ability or technique to it, then you can bridge those two things. And there have been a handful of people who have who have attempted to do that and have done so well. You think back to the Helter Skelter show and you think back to the High and Low show with, you know, Gopnik and, and some of those cats. And um, you realize that people have tried it, but that it seems like the the willingness of the public got less as the willingness of um, the kind of blue chip art world their need to engage went became less. There was this idea that, well, you know, we kind of like that people don't understand what it is that we buy. That way we get to feel superior. And so I always applaud people who are able to bridge those two worlds and kind of 
bring an appreciation from one to the other and back. So I think, uh, just, you know, you're doing some great I work. I just interject here with the, the word bridge. Yeah. Uh, it brings me back to the drawing of the hand gesture, which started it all for mm-hmm. me, uh, really being interested in the Panic Collective being the inaugural show for the Museum of Drawing. To me, that is all about a drawing coming to life. It is a drawing that calls to action. And for right now, it is absolutely the most perfect way of a drawing coming to life because it's coming coming into life in, in absolutely what we're dealing with right right now. Right. Well, excellent. Well, I think that's probably a great place for us to end this. And I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And thank you. Thanks again, for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And, and, you know, to my audience, I say again, you know, check out the Houston Museum of Drawing. Um, you can also check out the Panic Collective. That's Panic with a K, Collective, all one word. Um, they're on social media. Um, you know, you can, you can check out Apama Mackey's Gallery as well, also in Houston. And, um, you know, look for some more images that we'll post on the Pop Sequentialism um, blog that ties into our Pod Sequentialism program. And we'll, there'll also be mentions across La Luz de Jesus' media and probably across Meltdown Comics. So uh, thanks again to everybody for tuning in. Uh, this has been Matt Kennedy. You've been listening to Pod Sequentialism. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Thanks. guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.